Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. So you can open your Bible to Luke 7, and you should have an outline. Um, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this part of your word. It is a devastating section. And we pray that you will devastate us by the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that this is a liberating section. And so we pray that you will liberate us through the truth of your word. Father, we thank you that this is a hopeful section. And we pray that you may fill our hearts with hope through the truth of your word. We pray that your spirit may enlighten us. Your spirit may help us to know Jesus better to be more convinced of who he is, to trust him more. And uh, we pray this so that you will be glorified and our joy may increase. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So just for those of you who are new, we are working our way through Luke's gospel. Over the next couple of months, we will keep going. We'll probably keep going until next year. Uh, Luke is a fairly long section uh, one of the longest uh, gospels is actually is the longest gospel, but maybe just to kind of reorientate us, we have taken a break from from it for holidays. So just have a look there at your outline, just to remember Luke's method and his motive, if I can put it in those words. Luke said he went and investigated very clearly everything that happened. A number of people have investigated it. He has spoken to eyewitnesses. Um, there's some very interesting eyewitness accounts of some of the events in the Bible that he looked at. Then he decided he's going to put it into an orderly fashion, which means he wants to actually give us a picture of Jesus. So if you've read the Bible, you will know that there's quite a difference between the Gospels and the letters, isn't it? The letters are, in one sense, for our Western modern people, quite easy to read because it's very high on concepts and logic. Does it make sense? So it's very easy for us to understand. The Gospels are a little bit more tricky because the Gospels speaks in stories, in events. They are like, um, like word pictures, little events in Jesus' life that gives us an impression of Jesus' life. So what Luke says I've done, I have ordered those pictures so that you may see a collage of Jesus Christ. So when you read the Gospels, do yourself a favor. Try not to read it with high expectation of concepts. Try and read it with high expectation of imaginary pictures. Does that make sense? So we'll see that today again. You've got to see what he's saying because here Jesus is acting and doing things. And he said, I'm collecting this material and I'm putting it together for you in a way that you will be able to see who Jesus Christ is, because his ultimate goal, not only for Theophilus, but for us, is that we will have personal conviction about the truth of Jesus Christ. So this is one of the funny things. For those scholars and those teachers around here, in order for you to really live and integrate anything, you need to have a conceptual understanding, but you also need to have an emotional understanding of something, and that's only when it changes your life. So it's almost like the Gospels are written for the emotional understanding um, and the letters are written for the conceptual understanding. Now I'm making a, a generalization in that sense, but that is really what he's doing. So you'll find that Luke puts together stories and he connects them for us so that we can get a better view of who Jesus Christ is, so that we may have a more heartfelt, personal trust in Jesus Christ. 
Onsus mos amal kinders. Isn't that true? Children think in pictures. And pictures are powerful. And the gospel are word pictures of the glory of Jesus Christ. Not conceptual information, although those things are also very important. So that's why, do yourself a favor, read the Gospels often, but read slow and try and imagine you are in the story that you are busy reading. And then think how you would feel, how would you react, what would you see, what would be clear or not clear to you. Is that all right? So I'm going to try and do it today. We'll see how we go. All right. So when you look at this section, and you just looked at it briefly, so if you look down in chapter 7, so, sorry, we're jumping in here, so we're moving on. We've done the first six chapters. He's introduced Jesus to us. He's told us about the miraculous uh, pronouncements about his birth and the weird things that happened there, and John the Baptist and this weird guy that walks around in funny clothes and screams at people from the desert and tells us something about Jesus. So he's introduced Jesus to us, and now he's starting to look at Jesus, telling us what does he on about. So in chapter 7 to 8, really, if you read it carefully, or not carefully at all, you'll find that the word salvation or to be saved is referred to quite a number of times. So in chapter 7 and 8 is a number of stories combined for us by Luke about what is the salvation that Jesus Christ is offering. And we'll come back to that just now. Chapter 9, we'll look at as well this term, looks at what is the goal of redemption. Um, and we'll pick that up when we get there. But let's have a look at chapter 7. As Jesus has uh, just called his disciples, uh, he's actually told them what are the nature of his discipleship. Now he starts to go on a preaching tour uh, through Israel to call people towards himself. So here we go. So the context here is something we all see every day. So you shouldn't be too shocked, but it is an unfortunate, sad reality of our world. Chapter 7, verse 2. The centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. If you go down to verse uh, 12 of the chapter, as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So the context of these two stories that Luke has put together for us is about the reality of this thing we all know about and that we call death. So when you start to read the story, you realize death affects every single one of us. Whether you're a Gentile, or you're a Jew, who knows the Gentile whose servant is dying, you're affected. Whether you're a man of means, with great money, like the centurion, or you're a widow with nothing. Whether you're male, or whether you're female. Whether you're young or whether you're old. Whether you're religious or whether you're irreligious. Death will come to you. You know people dying at the moment? You may be dying, looking at some of you. You're not too far away. It's quite sad, isn't it? This world has the smell of death across it. No matter where you go. You go to New York. People die there. You go to Kaimandi, people die there. Death does not ask permission to infiltrate your life unexpectedly. Some die quickly, some die long and slow. Some die rich, some die poor. Some die young, some die old. You can see this whole story 
is the reality that death is the thing that marks our world. And it is that world that Jesus is going to enter and is entering. And so one of the interesting comments, and I just put it down there in your outline, uh, the reality of our need is that death affects all of us, is that Ecclesiastes says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. So, you at holiday? How many of you visited the funeral parlors? The Bible's very weird, isn't it? The weirdest book in the, in, in the world is the Bible. The Bible majors on death. Because there's one thing that every human being will experience, and that is death. And if you can't deal with that issue, well, what hope is there? Just think about it. The Bible is unbelievably realistic. It tackles it from the word go, and it even has entire books that deals with the issue of death, chapters that deals with the issue of death. Yeah, it's all about death. So the Bible says we're also weird creatures because we deliberately don't want to think that we're going to die. So that's why the advice is it is better. It doesn't solve the problem, but it is better to know that you are going to die and you need to remind yourself of that reality. Very good for you to do that. It's weird, isn't it? It's weird advice. That was a really weird book. Because it addresses us in our totality and it addresses all the major issues that every human being will face in this world. It addresses. It never skims on it. It never ducks and dives. It goes head fries. Bam! Tells you this is the reality. And so this is the context that this whole thing is doing. And right up front... As we are looking at this whole idea of salvation, Luke combines these two stories for us to give us an image, a picture, an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. As he has come into this world, being announced, proclaimed through the prophets, being announced through the angels, having come, now he is about to address us. And the first thing he really addresses is this major issue of death. So you've got two stories. The one is somebody gets saved from dying. So the servant is sick unto the point of death, and he's saved from dying. In the next story, you find somebody who's saved out of having died and is resuscitated, as we would call it. They come back into this world by Jesus Christ. And those are the two stories that we look at. But let's look at just a little bit of the detail. So if you look at the first story, it's fantastically written, um, and it's incredibly interesting. Here you have the centurion. He was a very, very good guy. He was obviously a man. It means a centurion means he had a hundred people under him. It's probably equivalent to a captain in the army today. He had a hundred people underneath him. He was a good guy. He had a real interest in the Jews, which was really uh, weird. He helped them to build their uh, synagogue. And if you want to go to uh, Capernaum today, there is a synagogue there. And the synagogue has got two layers. The bottom layer is dark uh, uh, rock, and the top layer is, is lighter rock. And the bottom layer is the foundation that was built by the centurion, still there. And it's recognized. Fascinating. So he did a pretty good job of laying the foundation. So when the synagogue was broken down, they rebuilt it, but they rebuilt it on the foundation that he built, and they finished it off again. So you can go and have a look if you want to in the, in the story. But here's a good guy. He's concerned for the Jews. He helps them to build the synagogue, and he's got the servant, and everybody's worried. Everybody's concerned for him. He is concerned for the slave. The Jewish leaders are concerned for this life. He hears about this Jesus who is coming around and has been healing people, and we've read that earlier. And so he sends 
these guys because he says, you know, I can't go and ask him myself. He's Jewish. I'm Gentile. Maybe they, he will listen to them. So they go and they ask him. Uh, and Jesus follows them to their house. Then he says, oh, okay, now that I know that you really are keen, don't bother because you've got so much power, you can just speak the word. You don't have to come into my house because I'm not worthy of you coming in so that my servant can be healed because I have a full confidence that you are exactly who you say you are and you have the power to do exactly what you want to do. And so here this guy receives salvation by faith. And Jesus makes an issue of that, isn't it? The whole point of the story is that Jesus drives it home, verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Jesus is only amazed twice in the Gospels. This is one of them. Very difficult to get Jesus to be amazed. Jesus, wow, I can't believe it. Somebody actually who is a non-Jew actually has faith. That is quite incredible. And then uh, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had seen him uh, sent, uh, returned to the house and found the servant well. So here's the first picture of salvation. But it's interesting when you read it. There are two views of faith in this picture. Two views of trusting Jesus and Jesus' intent in this first picture. The first is what I call the half-faith. And those are by the elders of the Jews. So I call it half-faith because they kind of believe, but they don't really believe. How do we know that? Well, look at them. He says... They recognize there's a problem. This is a problem beyond our ability to cope with. Somebody is on the point of dying, and there's nothing we can do for him. We can go and ask. And we recognize that the person to ask is Jesus Christ. That all sounds good, isn't it? We've got a problem we can't solve. We recognize Jesus has got the ability to solve the problem. So let's go and ask him. Sounds good? Absolutely. Now, look at what they do. Verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. All sounds good. Then here it comes. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. When you're in a tight spot, how do you talk to God? Please help me. I have a problem. And I have been reading my Bible. And I've been coming to church. And I've been doing some good stuff. I deserve for you to take pity on me. See what they're doing? He deserves it. Religion always wants to keep count of how many good things you've done so that you can recall it when you actually ask for something. Please help me because I've done this and this and this and this. They're keeping account. They're hoping that somehow they may stir this person who can do things into action by showing that he is a good guy. And, I mean, he's a good guy. The stuff he does was good. But they misunderstand that that is not the basis on which actually salvation is given. Look at the centurion's own estimation when he says to Jesus. He says, so, uh, so Jesus went with him, and then he says, he was not far from the house, verse 6, when the centurion sent friends and said to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I have a problem, and I can do nothing about it. And I do not deserve you to have a concern for my problem. 
But if you will only say a word, I know that my servant will be healed. But I know I don't deserve it. I've got no right. See, we're not only unworthy, we are actually ill-worthy. Do you know the difference between the two words? We actually are worth of ill because of our sin. We're not just unworthy, we are ill-worthy. He's saying, Lord, I am not worthy for you to take pity on my servant. I do not ask you because I am something for you to come. I have seen these guys. When you came, I assumed you must be willing. So if you will only speak because you've got so much authority, just say the word and the guy will be healed. Because I don't need you to come to my house. That's how unworthy I am. But please just say the word because you have the authority over life and death and it will happen in accordance with your word. Amazing, isn't it? See how interesting it is? So false faith can understand I've got a problem. False faith can even understand that Jesus is the answer. False faith can even ask Jesus for help. But the foundation of false faith is I actually deserve it. I'm not that bad. C.S. Lewis says as well, he says it takes an exceptionally good person to know how bad he is. Because bad people always want to tell you how good they are. It takes an exceptionally good person to recognize the evil and the bad inside of them. And no, I've got no reason why you should take pity on me. The difference is really there, isn't it? I've got a problem I can do nothing about. Jesus can do something. I can ask him, but the grounds is simply because you have the authority to decide whether you want to give it or not. And if you do, I know you'll be healed. That's all I have to offer. That's faith in the Bible at that level. Interesting, isn't it? That's a vulnerable position to be in, isn't it? I have a problem, and I can't do anything about it. And I know you can. But I have got no leg to stand on for you to take pity on me. But if you are willing, and you are so powerful, you can do it from a distance. You don't even have to come to my house. That's how powerful I know you are, because I'm powerful. If I say to the guy, go, he goes. If I say, come, he comes. I know all about authority. You must have an enormous amount of authority. So you don't need to be present to heal. You just speak the word. And then Jesus actually gives it to him as a gift. He heals his servant. But why does Jesus do that? Well, that's where the next story comes in, isn't it? Fantastic little story. Soon after, Jesus went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a loud crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. I mean, that's pretty destitute, isn't it, in those days? Sons were supposed to look after the widow. She's already been to a funeral before. She buried her husband. We're not sure if she had any other children, but this is the only son she had left, and now she's about to bury him. She's absolutely destitute. She has a problem beyond her ability or the town's ability to solve, because the entire town is there. They're all mourning with her. Nine is a small town, maybe 50 to 100 people. So you can imagine, the old town came to Stansel. Here's a death. Here's something that is beyond human capacity to deal with. We mourn, we're overwhelmed, we're frustrated, we're down and out. Jesus comes and he says to her, verse 13, When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, Don't cry. 
Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying with a coffin on it. They didn't have coffins. It was an open thing. All right? It was just a piece of plank. And the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. So here's the interesting thing. The first story we saw that Jesus is able to heal from a distance. But Jesus is so compassionate about humankind that he does not heal from a distance. He steps right into our brokenness. The word there, his heart went out for, is the word compassion as we translate it. But it's a, it, is a, it is a weak word. You know when somebody, an emotional event, kicks you in the gut so that you are so moved that you can't help yourself to act? That's what the word means. So when God looks down at mankind, at his problem exemplified in death, God has got compassion. It kicks God in the gut. (laughs) That's what he's saying. (laughs) And it compels him to act. And he acts first by sending his son to become a human, entering this world. So he comes and he says, because of the compassion I have, I want to come and help you solve your greatest problem that you are faced with day to day, and that is death. I've got compassion over you. I'm moved to act. He goes to her and he says to her, don't cry. So he comforts her, isn't it? But he goes one step further. I mean, he does something that you're not supposed to do, and it's really weird. Verse 14, then he went up and touched the bria. He goes and he touches death. See, he's not as scared of it. I mean, have, any, have you ever been to a corpse? Somebody you love? Touch them? Weird feeling, isn't it? Kind of a shocking feeling to do that. It's kind of, ah! I want to stay as far away from this as possible. Jesus says, I want to come as close to this as possible. That's my compassion for you. Now we know he's not going to just do that. We know he's going to go one step further, isn't it? The story is still carrying on. He's not going to touch death. Friends, he's going to enter death willingly for us. That's, what, that's how much compassion he has. He's not going to touch it. I mean, there's a weird thing to go and touch a corpse. He goes and touches it. Should have made him unclean. He doesn't make him unclean. Because he can deal with every single thing that we as humans can not deal with. He is not afraid of death. Don't cry. And then he says, oh, young man, get up. <laughs> Whoop. This guy sits up and starts talking. I mean, you know, you've got to use your imagination. What would you do if you were in a situation like that? Here's a woman, devastated, destitute, nothing. Here comes a guy and he says, no, 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 don't cry. Touches the woman and says, hey, get up. Boop. He sits up. Well, they tell us what their reaction is. They were all filled with awe and praise God. But look carefully at the text. The text tells us something other interesting thing. Not only does Jesus have compassion, not only does he comfort the mom, he actually touches death. He's got a powerful word that simply says, you know what, I can't only save you from death, I can save you out of death. That's how powerful I am. My voice does not only translate through distance, it translates into death and brings death to life. That's how powerful it is. 
And not only is that the issue, look how beautiful it says. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus took him and gave him back to his mother. Restoration. What's God after? Restoring life. Restoring relationships. Restoring what sin and death makes havoc with. That's what he's after. Amazing pictures. Can you see it? Does it move you? Does it grab your heart? Does it give you hope? Because one of these days, people are going to stand around your coffin. What hope do you have? What do you offer those who are about to die? What do you tell them? Is that it? Had a good innings. Jesus says, I care to the point where I enter into this world, enter into the very place of death, but I have the power to restore, to give life, and to restore all things. And they say, wow! They were filled with awe and praise God. Now, I think it's very difficult for us because we're not there. I mean, you kind of hear it and you think, oh, really, has it really happened? Interesting if you read a bit of church history. Hadrian was one of the emperors uh, around about 100 to 147 um, AD. And there was a person writing to Hadrian, telling him about this guy that was raised to life. Quadrutus was a historian, and he wrote about this dude who was raised and was still alive after Jesus died, and he met him. Now, 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 now you believe it, hey? <laughs> now you heard it somewhere else. This guy writes about it. He says, well, this has happened. And some of those dudes were around when I was around. They still lived long after Jesus was gone. Fascinating when you read church history and uh, some historical books. But yeah, he talks about this. These guys were amazed. They say, well, he's a great prophet. He's come among us. What is he? Who is this guy? Who has the ability not only to heal at a distance, but doesn't want to heal at a distance? He steps right into our brokenness, touches it, and reverses it like that. Who is this guy? Is he a prophet from God who's come to visit us and to come and help us? We'll have to read the next section to start to see where this conversation is going. But that is a very, very important question. Maybe you've got some other questions. Maybe you'd ask, you know, really, 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 that sounds really great. If Jesus does have the power, and I'm going to raise the questions for you, and I'm going to frustrate you, all right? Maybe you've asked this question to your so much. If Jesus does have the power to stop death from happening, and he has the power to raise the dead back to life, why does he not do it now? Is that a question you ask? Kind of sit back. Hmm, really nice story. Hmm. So if he is so powerful, why is he not doing anything? Are you there? Do you feel like that every now and again? Why does he not do what he... I mean, if he's in heaven, it shouldn't be a problem. The distance shouldn't be a problem for him, is it? He could just... Stop everybody from dying. And he could actually just bring all the dead back to life in any case. So why is he not doing it if he has all that authority? You got that question? Maybe I'm now frustrated you. Maybe now you have a question you didn't know you have. That's okay. Now we've got to keep on reading to get the answer. If you can't wait, I've given you a crypt note. So at the bottom of your service seat, Right at the right-hand corner, I've given you John 5, 21 to 29. 
that's how far Luke has taken us. Do you sense it in your heart to the point where you can go and tell it to somebody else? Go and ask your friends. Go and look in yourself in the mirror and say, how on earth am I going to deal with this problem of dying and death? How will I deal with it? Because it is coming. Ask yourself that question. Who would you trust? Ask your friends. Who would you trust? Who do you trust? What is your hope? Jesus gives us a picture. I'm not only able, but I'm willing. To the point where I enter right into it. And I touch it. Because I can overcome it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that your word is designed to wrestle us, to confront us with the realities that we see right around us and that we so desperately, so often want to ignore. Thank you that this right up front, as Jesus goes out into his preaching ministry, he deals with this absolute devastating reality that marks every single thing in this world, and that is the reality of death. We are all absolutely bankrupt before this problem. No matter how much money we have in the bank, no matter how many good things we've done, how, many, how poor, how destitute, how confused we are. We all are now at the same level. No one human being is exempt from this reality. Death. We've either seen it, we've either... Had loved ones die, we are either feeling we are dying. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have come to us. And we've seen in this little picture that you are able to reverse death. But that that is not enough. More is needed. And we will discover that as we follow you. Open our hearts, open our eyes, open our reason. Open our spirits so that we may deal and ask ourselves the question until we find an answer that actually is full of truth, full of history, full of fact, and above all, full of hope. Thank you for this passage that devastates us, yet it gives us hope beyond anything that we've ever seen or experienced in this life. Thank you for your son. May your spirit enable us to grasp hold of him. May our hearts rejoice in him. May we put our trust in him and may we follow him for the rest of our days so that we may truly understand the enormity of your plans and purposes of restoration for the universe. And we pray this in your name. Amen.